Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone's watching the leader. So ask yourself, as a leader, are you an energy giver or are you sucking energy out of the room? Are you giving hope and inspiration or something completely different? That's just one of the questions for you on this week's Playmakers Playbook. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply love a good story, this podcast is for you. Paul Roos played 356 AFL games for Fitzroy and Sydney and coached 268 matches with Sydney and Melbourne, the pinnacle being the 2005 Premiership with the Swans. And just as he did throughout his time in the game, he continues to lead and mentor these days through his business, Performance by Design, and The Nurture Group, which he runs with his wife, Tammy. I first met Paul during my time as a TV reporter in Sydney in the mid-90s. I was reporting on the Swans when few others would, and loved interviewing Rusey, first as a player and later as a coach, because he always had something to say. Thankfully, he still does. Cox throws it onto the left. One last roll of the dice for To the people who have waited 72 years to see South Melbourne slash Sydney Swans win the Premiership, here it is! One of the most iconic AFL moments of certainly this century. Paul Roos, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. That is almost 15 years ago now. Do you still get just a, a little bit of a tingle when you hear that? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of when you hear it again, it doesn't seem that long ago. I mean, I don't necessarily think about it too much on a day-to-day basis. But, yeah, when you see the vision of the last quarter and holding the cup up and Leo's mark and some of those really big moments, yeah, it's exciting and it's an amazing memories and it takes you right back to the game. And, you know, you, you think through all uh, the things that we went through and obviously the excitement of the fans and everyone, it was a, a fantastic day and fantastic week after that. Where does it stand? Uh, you know, you achieved so much in your career and, and went on to coach at Melbourne after the Swans. Where does it, it stand as one of the moments in your career? Yeah, obviously winning a premiership. I mean, I played for sort of 17 years, got to a grand final in 96 and we lost. So that was amazing. So I think you realise when you win it, you know, it is the pinnacle of our sport and it's very hard to reproduce in any form of your life, to be perfectly frank, when you do something like that. Yeah, going back to Melbourne was different. I mean, there's some really good highs because we'd started from such a low base. But to win a premiership 
yeah, it's just the ultimate. And and to go through it after 72 years, you know, and you, you sort of feel the pain of all the South Melbourne and Sydney fans and you live it and you breathe it for so long and then to win it was just incredible. Do you miss coaching? You miss winning, I think, and, and miss doing something collectively with a group of people. Um most of the stuff you don't miss <laughs> because it's, yeah, it's time consuming. But yeah, there are parts of it. Probably the, you know, when you, when the siren goes and the ability to sit in the coach's box with your group of coaches and getting to the rooms and the excitement of seeing the players come in and winning and then the, the fans and the board and the, yeah, the, the, the people that work for the footy club and all those sort of things. Yeah, they're, they're the sort of things you, you really miss, absolutely. And what are you up to nowadays? Because you've also stepped away from your um, TV commitments. So um, what, what's keeping you busy? Yeah, I think what consumes me now is more the leadership side of everything, whether that's sport or business. So I've got a company that I run with, with three other partners, Performance by Design, which is a building culture and leadership, and also have an events company, which I've got some partners, which called is the Nurture Group Retreats. And we, we do small, medium business leadership and wellness retreats. So try to upskill those leaders, and both in terms of their own health as well as their leadership capability. So, yeah, very much my work done in that leadership culture space i imagine things are reasonably quiet on that front at the moment but how does what we're living through at the moment um impacts all of that and and the businesses that that you're talking to and 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 you speak to how are they dealing with it yeah look it varies obviously because you know there's a lot of people going through some incredibly difficult times and losing businesses and losing jobs and and so forth um, which is unbelievably difficult. I suppose for me, it's been a real opportunity to step back and watch. And it really has just reinforced so many of the things I learned through playing football. You know, you've got to build really strong relationships. You know, if you have a strong culture, you can get through some of these really tough, trying times. You know, if you haven't got great leadership in your business, it becomes really, really difficult to be able to navigate these times. And it's really hard to do under pressure. You've got to set up your environment. You've got to set up your your, your behaviours, you've got to be really clear. Probably the biggest things I talk about is role models, is leaders being role models, you know, and also how do you want to act and behave and building really, really strong relationships. So it's really hard to talk about individual companies because every company will be going through different things. But as a summary, you know, you have to have really good leadership, really good role models, you have to build really good relationships and you have to be really clear on what you stand for as an organisation. So we'll talk about a few of those things, but let's start with um, uh, building relationships and, and that connectivity that that requires. That's really difficult in these times, isn't it? It is really difficult. It's something we're really working on a lot of our leaders when, with performance by design. And I think a lot of it revolves around, which is going to be hard to do at the moment, but a lot of this revolves around just making phone calls and seeing how people are not necessarily talking about the business. And I think the leaders that can do that, you know, and have done it over the last two weeks and continue to do that over the next week or two weeks or whenever we get active again, because what will happen out of that, people will go back to work eventually and say, oh, you know, Paul Roos, our CEO, and, gee, he rang me a couple of times, you know, week two and said, how are you going? And I said, oh, the business is going well. He said, no, no, hang on. I want to know how you're going. Yeah, you know, how's your family How's your parents? I heard your, your mum was sick or your dad was sick. 
And that's what connection really is. If the leaders are prepared to connect at that level and not just at a level of how many sales have you made or how's the business going, and it is challenging at the moment. So what we're trying to connect, what we're trying to tell our leaders is just to really connect, whether that be the start of meetings and say, guys, what's happened this week? Give us a bit of a shout out. How's your family? Tell us something about your kids, homeschooling your kids or whatever. So connect at a much deeper level. I talk about now leadership coming out of the head and going into the heart. Those leaders that become more in the heart than in the head are going to be successful in the long term. See, the thing about that is it's actually not that difficult, is it? It's about no. caring for your, your fellow man and having some empathy. I mean, there's no great skill in that, is there? It's funny. I was on this sort of virtual lunch last week, which was fantastic with these CEOs, great CEOs, and they're all asked, what have you learned through this period? And they just about everyone has said, oh, you know, we need great people. And, and my answer to that is I hope you're now going to walk the walk because I've seen it for a lot of period of time that leaders talk the talk. Oh, we look after our people. We you do a great job. And in reality, they don't. They don't do a great job in those really simple things, Nick, that you talked about. It doesn't take a lot for a CEO to walk into someone's office, sit down and say, how are you? Oh, look, yeah, sales are great. No, no, no. How are you? How are you going? It doesn't take a lot of work, but a lot of leaders just don't do it. And I hope out of this, the leadership model changes dramatically, that those simple conversations, little and often conversations, where really, how are you? How can I help you? What, what, you know, what wins you're having and what struggles you're having? It is really easy to do. So I think through this, leaders have realised they need good people, but I hope out of this, they action it and take some action about developing their people and making sure they continue to connect with them. So you've spent 35 years or more than 35 years in the game uh, of AFL and all of those experiences have informed you as a, as a leader and your leadership philosophies. But take us all the way back to uh, Fitzroy in the early 80s. What was it at Fitzroy early on that, that really shaped you and, and, and your leadership philosophy? Yeah, it was a great question because it probably wasn't at the time I realised how lucky I was until I, you know, was sort of four or five years into my career. But when I talk about role models now, I genuinely had great role models when I walked into that football club. I didn't fully appreciate it. Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinlan, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, and the list goes on. And they were great people, not only just great players and not only they train hard, but the way they acted off the field was just incredible as well. So I didn't fully realise it, but yeah, they shaped most of my beliefs as a 17-year-old coming into a footy club. Because typically what people try and do in a business or in a football club is act their way into the system. So they look around and they say, oh, what gets rewarded? What gets challenged? What the leaders do? And at the end of the week, when you're having a conversation with your husband or your wife and you've been at a new company or a new footy club for a week, the, the question is, oh, how was the week? And you, you never recite the HR manual. You actually say, well, this is what I saw. Oh, gee, everyone was really respectful. They all dressed well. They all turned up for meetings on time. None of them were on their mobile phones. They were all, that's your culture. And what I saw at Fitzroy was just a great group of human beings working extremely hard to be the best they possibly can be. And I was really, really lucky. And that really shaped my beliefs as a player and as a coach for the next 35 years. Footballers, I guess, get judged by what they do when they're wearing the Guernsey on a, on a weekend. How much of that, though, from what you saw was about 
off the field and what, what those men were doing away from the game as well. Yeah, but a lot of it, and I say this now, a lot of pl- most players give or take when everyone's around will train within 10% of each other, whether that's, you know, Brett Kirk or Gary Wilson, two of the best trainers, or a Nick Davis who sort of by his own admission struggle. But, but when they're together, Nick Davis would only really be about 10% different to Brett Kirk. It's when they're away from the football club that I learned so much, you know, whether that be on a footy trip, you know, with the players themselves. And, you know, our, our footy trips at Fitzroy, I remember at the same time we would go away. Other clubs would get up and they'd start drinking in the morning at 10 o'clock. Our guys would go, I remember going to Hawaii. We'd, we'd hire a car, we'd drive around the North Shore, we'd spend the day, you know, sunbaking or, you know, playing footy on the beach or doing stuff like that. And then we'd all get back to the hotel and then, you know, we'd meet at five o'clock in the afternoon around the swimming pool, have a couple of drinks, have dinner together. Even that was dramatically different to a lot of clubs at that particular time. So most of the stuff happens, Nick, you're right, away from the prying eyes of the CEO or the coach. And and as I said, they were just really good people. And I still connect with them today. You know, like I went for a run with Mickey Conlon last week. I spoke to Laurie Serafini. So that bond has existed over this period of time because they were, span- they were just such good role models. Do you remember the moment that you decided that you really wanted to be a coach and, and why did you want to be a coach? It probably really didn't happen to Rocket. I remember, you know, I remember this story vividly. We played against uh, Geelong and Rodney was under pressure to, to keep his job. Everyone knew that. I mean, when it happens at a footy club, everyone understands and everyone knows it. And we were about three goals up. I remember with about five minutes to go against Geelong and I thought, well, we, he's got another week. We've got to buy the next week and he, he'll be fine. And they kicked four or five goals in about four minutes or five minutes. And we lost the game. And I sort of half say this jokingly now that you know, if I'm doing a talk at the local footy club, I said, guys, is the coach in the room? Yep. I said, if you ever get beaten down to the rooms by the board, I said, grab your keys, just go straight to the car, jump in the car and don't bother coming back. Um, as I said... We actually got to the we got to the rooms and every board member was already in the rooms. The CEO was in the rooms, and I thought, oh, this is not going to end well. And our CEO at the time was Kelvin Temple, who won a Brownlow medal, and he wanted to bring the players in the next day to do a full full scale practice game. And I thought, my God, that's that's going to go over really well. Anyway, long story short, by the Monday, I got a phone call. I think first by Johnny Blakey. And Johnny was in Brisbane at the time, or he might have been still at Melbourne, one of the two. And he goes, oh, Ruzi, I heard Rodney's going to resign. I said, not that I know of. And then about 10 minutes later, Stephen Quartermain rings me and Quarters goes, oh, Ruzi, you've got any comment about Rocket leaving? I said, mate, I've got no idea what you're talking about. And my office was next to Rocket's office. So I literally got out of my desk. I walked into Rocket's office. I said, mate, I've just had two phone calls. Are you, are you resigning? He goes, yeah, no, I am. I said, oh, geez, okay. So it really wasn't until that next day. Then we all had a meeting and we he'd, he'd resigned. We all had a meeting. I think it was me, Steve Malaxos and Johnny Longmore, I think it was. We were assist, we were assistant coaches. And uh, Dennis Carroll was chairman of selectors. I think Kel, um, Cole Sear is our football manager. And we discussed what are we going to do for the rest of the year? And we thought, oh, we can rotate it. And then either that day or the next day, Dennis rang me and said, mate, we want you to be the coach. What do you think? So probably it wasn't really until that stage that I had to think about it. 
Because my strategy was, let's sit back a bit, be an assistant coach, learn as much as you can, and then decide whether you want to be a senior coach. So it really happened quite abruptly. But then when I had to make the decision whether I wanted to put my name in for the job, because I said, look, you know, you're talking about long-term, and they said, no, no, just till the end of the year. And I'm sort of like, oh, okay, um, yeah, that makes it um, a little bit hard. So then I had to go away and make the decision, and then I just I chose, obviously, to, to put my hat in the ring for the next 10 weeks. Can you talk about those few games that you spent on the bench at the end of your career, which, as I read it, really impacted the way you've coached? Yeah, so a couple of things happened towards the end of my career, and sort of about mid to the end of the season, I, you know, I started struggling a bit. And back then the interchange wasn't used like it is now. And I started a few games on the bench and I started to look at the game differently a bit. I thought, you know, being a pretty good player for most of my career and getting a game every single week. And then all of a sudden I thought, gee, not everyone thinks like me. Not everyone gets a game every single week. And it really gave me a fantastic opportunity to look at it through the eyes of all the players on the list, not just the better players. And as a result of that, I saw it, you know, a different side of the game. And then when I retired at the end of October 1998, I just sat down at my desk and I decided the right things that I learned from that period, but also the things I learned about my coaches and didn't and didn't like about my coaches through the eyes of a player. And I just had this gut feel it was going to be really important if I ever wanted to be a coach. And I wrote it through the eyes of a player as a recently retired player. And it turned out to be the best document that I ever wrote in my career. And I had it for the eight and a half years coaching Sydney. It was the first document I took out when I started at Melbourne. And it really became my coaching doctrine over an 11 and a half year period. It was really born out of that last five or six weeks of playing and sitting down at my desk in October 1998. So 25, I think, philosophies as I read it. Is that correct? Yeah, it just turned out that was the number. One of them I added after I'd been overseas in 1998, uh, 1999 where we lived in America. But yeah, 24 of them were sort of, and some of them are a, a bit irrelevant now because they're around, you know, interchange and things like that. But the majority of that formed the basis of my coaching, you know, ideology for, for many years to come. And what are some of the, or perhaps give us the, the two or three most important things that, uh, that I imagine, I'm guessing, that could be applied in any walk of life, business, family? Yeah, it's funny. Some of them are really simple, but having them written down, treat people as you want to be treated yourself. I think we all sort of say that. But, yeah, if you're looking at a CEO, you know, in terms of employer, your coach, player, it can easily get out of hand. Um, players don't go out to make mistakes. Again, in a high-pressure situation, I've never seen a player. So writing that down from a player's point of view allows you then to go, when you're watching a game back, well, maybe that player didn't really just want to kick the ball out of bounds on the fall and really didn't mean to, you know. Probably the one that I found the, the most helpful was um, if you've got nothing to say after a game, don't fly off the handle, wait until Monday. Because I've seen so many relationships destroyed after games of football where coaches just go bananas. And when I, when I read them out to corporates, you can see the leaders shaking their head going, yeah, I've done that before. You know, <laughs> yes. You know, we've lost a sale in real estate or we've had a, we've lost a big sale in whatever it is and I've just gone off my, my rocker. You know, so they're probably, you know, there's, there's a lot of them that I've written down which are very similar. Communication, honest communication, be really specific at quarter time, half time, three quarter time. You know, again, I went through an era which was a bit different. But what I 
what I wrote down was players want solutions. They just don't want to be told, you know, create a positive environment, um, finish off with positives rather than negative. So all those sorts of things really form, but let players be more responsible for the game plan, the discipline, the team rules, um, and really form the basis, as I said, for my whole coaching career. So they were basically your, you know, for want of a better term, company values throughout your coaching career? Yeah, 100%. And I think it really held me accountable to be able to pull that piece of paper out because when things are going really well, which they did a lot of times at, Fitz, uh, at Sydney, but, you know, a lot of what we created at the start of, um, you know, 2003 before I started my full-time stint, but certainly in Melbourne, you know, we went through really, really tough times. So to be able to pull that, you know, um, piece of paper out of my drawer and, and look at it, you know, I remember week two or three and I'd been at Melbourne, we had couple of bad losses and we'd only just started and I remember Nathan Jones who I love Nathan Jones and he was sort of really apologetic to me he said oh mate we're shit I said mate relax we'll get through it don't worry about it you know and in the back of my mind I'm thinking bloody hell how, how are we gonna get through it but you know like even just that ability to stay calm you know look look at the doctrine those behaviors as you said the values that I've written down and one of the things I'm always aware of that the leader's energy is everyone's watching the leader, everybody. And I talk about this all the time. As a leader, are you sucking energy out of the room? You know, when you walk in the room and people go, oh, here comes Ruzi, I can't get out of here quick enough. Or here comes Ruzi, fantastic. He's going to give us some hope. He's going to provide a solution. You know, too many leaders just suck the energy out of the room where, oh, no, you know, are you an energy giver or are you an energy sucker? Mm. You know, I think it's a really good way to, to value yourself as a leader, what do you do? Do you give energy to people or do you just take it away from people and make it? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Really hard for them. The leaders you deal with, uh, uh, do you find that they have that ability to self-assess like that or is that something that you have to help them with? Look, it's certainly getting better. I think that old style of leadership is waning. I think probably the biggest thing I see is a lot of leaders in the corporate world are very outcome focused. And I try to, t- try to, to bring them back to the, to the process. And again, it's never been more important. What can you control at the moment? It's really, really, you get on the news and, you know, you can fish in New South Wales, you can't fish in... Victoria, you can play golf in New South Wales, you can't play golf in Victoria, you can go to school here, you can't, you know, it just drives you nuts if you're trying to overanalyze. But what can you control as a leader? And I think that's something I really try and focus on the leaders with. What's the process? What does today look like? Don't worry about your budget, that'll look after itself. But if you can get today right, and if you don't get today quite right, what did you get wrong and what can you do better tomorrow? You know, stick to the process. But a lot of leaders don't really have a process, don't really have values, don't really have behaviours, don't really know what makes a really good day. The good ones do, and the good ones are really, really exciting to work with. But there is a general shift, I think, 
I think most people are starting to think about, yeah, how can I get out of my head into my heart? How can I connect with the staff? You know, how do they understand what makes me? I know I'm a role model. I know I have to set examples. Yeah, so look, it is changing and, and with some really good ones I, I love working with. And even the ones that are struggling are starting to say, well, how can I get better? How can I improve? You know, I understand what you're talking about. So certainly there's a real shift in leadership. And that happened, you know, in footy clubs, you know, probably late 90s, early 2000s, you know, when we started to become full-time. To be fair to Wolsey and David Park and... I mean, we were, we were working all day. We didn't have enough time for, for setting behaviours and leadership groups and having vulnerable discussions. We could barely fit training in. I, I remember going to training, getting there at 4.30. You'd train at 5 o'clock. You'd, get in the, you'd train for three hours. You'd get in the car. You'd drive home, have to cook something for dinner when you get home and then get up and go to work the next day. You know, so the evolution of AFL coaching, you know, coincided with full-time players in the late late 90s, early 2000s. And it's changed dramatically over that period of time. Yep. And and uh, and businesses likewise uh, probably evolving over that time as well, like you say. Uh, just circling back to um, to the values, I think we probably all worked in companies where, you know, you, you'll have the values emblazoned yep. on the wall. Um, how important though is it to actually live those values and, and, and be seen to be adhering to what you've all decided as a group? Yeah, great, great question. Because I think I think a lot of companies have a purpose and values, but but a lot of them don't have behaviours. And, and I'll explain that for everyone listening. So let's say we, you and I, Nick, we have a company and we agree that passion and communication and integrity. But integrity might look slightly different to you than it does to me. If all of a sudden we can come up with three clear set of behaviours under integrity, then it becomes a lot clearer. We agree, tell the truth. Let's say we said, that's pretty clear. Hang on, Nick, you didn't tell me the truth. Yeah, but I acted with integrity because I didn't think you needed to know that at the time. Hang on, mate. We, I understand what you're saying, but one of our behaviours is tell the truth. So you see what I'm saying? So if, what we try and do at Performance by Design and what we're able to do at Sydney and Melbourne and, and I know Hawthorne and Geelong, we're able to do it as well, articulate really clearly what those behaviours are, and then take your team on a ride with you. Get them to, if you can, get them to form the behaviours with you. So then they have buy-in. And then one of the things we always talk about is little and often conversations. So at every single opportunity, you talk about them. At every single meeting, you reward them or challenge them. And then it just becomes what you do. It can't be just something on a wall or in a manual that you never talk about. And unfortunately, a lot of comp companies do that. They get to the point of having a purpose, having a values, but they don't really live them and breathe them because they never reward them and they never challenge them and they never bring them into their daily wording about how we act on a consistent basis. So it's all about building a culture, isn't it? I talk about being a roadmap. I was just really fortunate to have great role models at Fitzroy that just showed me the way to do it. We didn't want to. T- we didn't want to take that. We didn't want to, you know, have that, that created by chance. We wanted to create that ourselves at Sydney. So we collectively agreed on how we act, and we really created a blueprint and a roadmap for the players. And then we, all we did was talk about acting your way into the system or acting your way out of the system. And we had really good leaders. Stewie Maxfield was exceptional. You know, his leadership capabilities in terms of role modelling was off the charts. He's one of the best leaders I've, I've ever dealt with. Um, and then we just 
created habits, like you said, little and often conversations. Footy club's accountability model is off the charts. Yeah, we review games, we review individual players, and we preview games, we preview individual players. So we do it consistently, and really good football clubs do it in a really open manner, really clear on how they want to act and what they stand for. And as I said, you ultimately act your way into the system or act your way out of the system. I'm going to ask you about this, the, the renowned no dickheads policy. Did that ever actually, was that a stated policy or was that just a byproduct of what you created in Sydney? I actually think, I think it was Rick Barham, our recruiting bloke, was quoted at one stage. I think it was Rick, I, I should ring him and ask him. Yeah, we have a no dickheads policy. And it was sort of, because he understood what we were trying to do, that's the way he articulated it. You know, and, and it really was more of osmosis. It wasn't like we wrote it on a, a board and, you know, please, no dickheads because it's a fairly loose term in Australia, really. <laughs> I mean, so, but I think Rick believed in it so strongly and, and I talk about culture travelling as well. You know, culture travels. You know, it's just something that people pick up and even though Rick wouldn't have been in our meetings yeah, he was in a lot of our recruiting meetings because he had head recruiting and understood exactly what we wanted. But that was really his interpretation of what we'd built. Yeah, we have a no dickheads policy. If we get someone in that's a questionable character and they don't act the way, you know, Ruzi and the leadership group want them to act, they'll, they'll, they'll get taught, they'll get help through the process. But ultimately, if they don't want to do it, they'll get spat out the other way. It's almost, though, a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? If you create the right culture, you will get people and i'm thinking also in a business sense here if you as a business have a really good culture you'll get people wanting to come and work for you because you've got a great culture and and therefore this this momentum begins yeah the number of times i've spoken to leader leaders about that nick is unbelievable and i've said to them if you if you want good people create a good culture and people will the phone will start ringing mm. The phone will ring. You will pick up the phone and someone will say, look, it's you know Paul Rusi. Oh, mate, what are you ringing me for? Because you'll know who he is because you're through the industry. Oh, look, I want to come and work for you. Have you got a spot? You're 100% right. People will start ringing you and better people will be attracted. The opposite occurs. I read this in a book um, about a month ago, which is, which is probably not surprising. But if you've got a bad culture, do you know who the first people that leave a bad culture are? The best people. Because their self-worth is too great to stay in a in a bad culture. So if you've got a bad culture, your culture's gonna even drop further because all the good people are gonna leave. And let me tell you where they're gonna go, to the company with a good culture. So the gap is gonna continue to increase exponentially over a period of time unless you get your culture right. Who are the best leaders in the game you've seen? It's hard to judge players from other teams because and I, and I always laugh and and having been in the media I always laugh when someone says oh you know who's the next captain of the club you've got no idea if you've created <laughs> yeah if you created a, a proper system if you're outside the footy club you have no idea who the next captain of the football club is because you have no idea what internally you value so I always found it I find it really uncomfortable to talk about great leaders from other clubs Shuey Maxfield is elite leader, you know, when, when we set up our system. Nathan Jones, I, I, I really take my hat off to Nathan Jones as well because I've worked with Nathan. Nathan, by his own admission, was a very individual player. You know, he 
and and you you could see how it happened because and I and I was probably a little bit similar when I was at Fitzroy because when things don't go well, you really internalise and you say, well, look, I've got an opportunity to be the best player I can be, and often at the expense of the team. Yeah, you know, Nathan was an extraordinary player, but the number of conversations I said to Nathan about, mate, I don't need you to do that now. Oh, mate, but that's what I, I remember. A really good story, and I hope you wouldn't mind me telling this. We put him on um, Mark Murphy in round three of my first year. I said, mate, I want you to tag Mark Murphy. Yeah, he's their best player. And he 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 beat him hands down. And we won the game, and he got the three votes. And I walked up to him after the game. I said, Nate, that's the best game I've ever seen you play. He said, no, it's not. <laughs> and I was like, like, what? But that was the mentality. But the Nathan I left at the end was so different to the Nathan I met at the start. It was because he had this passion for the club and he wanted the club to be better. And we had some really meaty conversations. But at the end of the day, his ability to change as a leader was just fantastic. You know, to be pretty selfless when I started, but then by the end to be really a lot more selfless and understand the concept of team. I mean, so he was fantastic. I love Nathan Jones because of his transformation. Stewie picked it up from day one, but Stewie was in the coach's box at the end of 2002, which really helped him. He was injured and he spent 10 weeks in the coach's box helping me and the other coaches, and I think that really helped him. They're two really good leaders. For those of you who haven't seen it, um, watch The Last Dance. It's just one of the best pieces of television you will ever see. If you want to talk about culture, you want to talk about leadership, and I was with someone this morning. And if you want to get a view of where sport has changed, and this is where a message to the AFLPA at the moment, you look at the transition from Michael Jordan to LeBron James, where everything now is about the individual in, in sport. And Michael, and it's just a reminder to everyone how good he was. And I'm not going to get into the debate of the best because I know in my view, Michael's that far ahead of anyone else. But my point being, Nick, and you're, you've been sports journalism, look at the conversation that Michael is having in the last dance. As good a player as he is, there's nothing about him in those interviews where you look back and say, how selfish was he? Mm. How humble is he? It's incredible how humble he is. He shakes the hands of all the Detroit Piston players for two years in a row, and Isaiah Thomas walks off the court without shaking the ball's hands. Everything that Michael says is about his own personal brand, his individual brand. It's just extraordinary when you look at it. Everything Phil Jackson does is about the culture of the Bulls and the culture of the organisation. Now, there's some things that doing then you'd never get away with now. So I'm not suggesting, you know, Dennis Rodman could get away with going to Vegas now for, you know, what did he leave and disappeared for, for those you haven't seen it. But what I'm saying is, in answer to your question, it's given me a a greater appreciation of the Bulls because I was a big fan of Phil Jackson's. I read a couple of his books. I was a big fan of Michael Jordan's. But taking me inside that club has given me a greater insight as to the level of Michael's personal brand and what he stood for and also Phil Jackson as leaders. Exceptional. So are you suggesting that um, that there uh, needs to be a bit more team in AFL at the moment? That Has it got to be too much the individual? Is, is that what you're alluding well, to? Well, I think if you follow the NFL, because I'm married to American, for those who don't know, and I've been going to America for a long period of time, 
And I remember going to a YPO function and Chuck Daly, for those who don't know Chuck Daly, Chuck Daly coached the Detroit Pistons in back-to-back championships. They beat, beat the Bulls two years in a row. And Chuck Daly was speaking at this function and it would have been about mid-2000s. And he, i never, ever forget this. And he said, NBA players have now become more about themselves than about the team. And it really struck me. And, and watching Michael compared to the current NBA players is dramatically different. As selfless as LeBron is, most of it is about him and how good he is. Kobe Bryant, fantastic. But again, a lot of it's around how good they are. Michael, as selfish as Michael was, most of the stuff he talked about was about the team and and how humble he was. And I I think there's a transition period now in the AFLPA, just to making sure through this period that they're always connecting with the fans. They're always understanding... You know, they've probably missed the boat a little bit in this whole thing with the pay cuts and et cetera, et cetera. You know, people want you to connect with it, whether that's with business. You know, people want you to feel that if they're feeling pain, they want the players to be able to feel that pain. I I think they're still pretty good in Australia, Nick, but certainly my advice to them is always think about what other people are going through. Think about how lucky you are through this period. Make sure it is all about the team, the game, et cetera, et cetera. But it was more just watching the NBA and how, I think looking back, how dramatically that has transitioned, just making sure that's a warning sign for us in Australia that we always connect with our fans. It's always about the team. It doesn't come down to the eye individual, you know, which which certainly American sports really turned more individual than it is about the team. Well, you've, you've touched on it because in this environment and what we're going through now, um, you know, the the players could be seen to be, you know, they're being paid a lot of money, uh, could be seen to be a little bit out of touch. Do they have to go that extra distance to make sure that people understand, understand that they're not? Well, I think a good, I'll give you a practical example, and this is not a criticism, this is more opportunity. You know, there was a great opportunity, I guess, for, for Patty and, and Paul Marsh to, to call their own press conference a month ago. And this is just an example. Again, please don't take this as a criticism, but this is probably an example of what you're talking about, what I'm talking about. Call your own press conference and just say, look, we understand what everyone is going through. We are going to take a pay cut. There's no question about that. But look, we need to work through some things with the AFL, but make no mistake, we know what's happening out there and we will make a sacrifice. Pretty simple thing to do, all right? So to your point, just keep connecting with people, keep understanding people. And look, that may be happening behind the scenes, and I'm sure it is, but I think the public want to see the human side of our players, and majority of them are fantastic. And to be to be perfectly frank, Paddy Dangerfield, I think, is one of the best people I've ever met in footy. And again, this is not a criticism, but just making sure that you're always mindful of of how often you are watched. And I think in the last probably couple of weeks, it's been tidy up a bit and, you know, it seems. But, yeah, I think it's just making sure you are connecting as much as you possibly can. And it's certainly in Australia, we're still a long way from where they are in the NBA and the NFL. But just make sure, you know, we keep that connection and make sure people feel like that the, the players aren't out of sight, out of mind, and they are connecting with what's happening with everyday Australia. And just to uh, just to wrap it all up, and in a more general sense, uh, how does society look coming out of uh, what we're going through 
right now and and in the space that you work in that that sort of high-end leadership business uh part of society how are things going to change do you think it's a great question i don't think any of us really know and i I think firstly before answering i'd say look there's some people that are dramatically more affected than, than other people so for those people i hope if they've lost their jobs, lost their business, I hope they can reach out. I hope they get the support they need. I mean, that's really, really critical. And to that point, and to your point, Nick, I hope the leaders understand that and step up to the plate and understand how difficult it is for, for a lot of those people. That's the first thing. So we need leaders that have great empathy. We need leaders that have great self-awareness. We need leaders that are going to get out of their head and get to their heart and really connect with people. And we need leaders that look after their people. I think I said it earlier on. Don't just talk bullshit and say, I want to look after my staff. Actually look after them. Make sure they feel really, really valued. And I think out of this, do your own personal development. There's never, we've never been by ourselves more, to be perfectly frank, have we? I mean, if you can't do personal development at the moment, I don't think it's, it's really possible. Um, do some personal development. You know, whatever, whatever situation you're in, reach out you know we're here to help with performance by design and hopefully it's not doesn't sound like a sales pitch and i know tammy my wife's got some great meditation stuff reach out to people people want to help at the moment and collectively let's not lose that once we start getting back to work let's not lose that empathy let's not lose that connection let's make sure we're continually helping each other out we're all you know i know people have said we're all this together but someone told me a great story a friend of mine said Actually, one of her friends said, Jules, we're not in this together. I've lost my house. I'm now living with my parents. You know, I've got no money. I've got no income. And I think what she was saying is, let's not continue this rhetoric. Let's absolutely do something to help each other. You know, let's not just have profile people on telly talking about we're in it together. Let's make sure we are helping each other because those people don't feel like we are in it together. All right, so let's let's feel for them and let's in some way, shape or form connect with them and help them. So in, in some way they do feel, yeah, I am getting the help and support I need. That's what I hope comes out of it, that we become more connected as a community. Yeah, we love each other more, we help each other more and there's real opportunity if that happens. Ruzi, it's a great note to finish on. Um, have really appreciated your time today. It's, uh, it's great to catch up. Thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Paul Ruse on the Playmakers Playbook this week. Just some of the wisdom built up over more than 35 years at the top of his game. The Last Dance, which you heard Paul talk about, is available on Netflix, and it is a fascinating watch. And if there's something you heard today that you'd like to explore further, check out performancebydesign.co, nurtureher.com, and nurture360.com.au. The Playmakers Playbook is available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, give us a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on The Playmakers Playbook. Hold up, what was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.